Y'all be happy to know my watch is still in central time. So. <clears throat> <clears throat> Very good to be here and see another good crowd, a good song service. So thankful mm -hmm. for your participation in the song service. And uh, as I said last night, um, it's always good to have good liberty and study, and it's also very encouraging when um, the prayers are somewhat of a preface for the message. And um, I appreciate the prayer that was prayed, and um, I believe it hopefully will be very appropriate with what the Holy Spirit will hopefully bless us to consider. I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we'd like to consider together forgiveness, forgiveness, and that's why it's so appropriate, um, the prayer that was prayed to not be in the seat of the scornful, not to point at others, because anytime we point at others, as was said, we always have four fingers pointing back at us. You can stay there in Matthew chapter 18, but I'd like to read a couple verses for you to just be meditating on, on as we go through this. Um, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives another rendition of the uh, model prayer. We know the wording from the model prayer probably better from the gospel of Matthew, uh, but he uses this wording in, in Luke chapter 11, when he Pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I believe that's an important distinction as we try to uh, consider, you know, we're just being honest together today, the challenge of forgiveness, mm -hmm. because it's a debt. If it's, a, if it's a real offense, and we want to deal with that too, sometimes it's not a real trespass, a real offense. Sometimes we're just a little too sensitive, mm -hmm. and we just need to kind of get over that. Um, but, but if it's a real offense, if it's a real offense, that's a debt. That's a debt that in your mind, when you forgive someone, you have to make a choice for you to make that payment. You know, we want to hold the other person accountable and make them make the payment. Right. It's a debt. They owe us. You know, they have a, a debt that's supposed to be paid. And in our nature, we want to make them pay it. Forgiveness is saying, I'm choosing to pay that debt. Right. Okay? So keep that verse in mind. And then also, Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 32, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So it might be very easy to look at different circumstances and look at an offense that someone might have towards you and say, well, they're not worthy of my forgiveness. And I will say, regardless of if they're contrite, if they've apologized, that's not relevant, really, in regards to your forgiveness. Most likely they're not worthy of your forgiveness. Now, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> you need to be reminded of the fact that you weren't worthy of Christ's forgiveness. Amen. Right? Why did God forgive you? It weren't because you were worthy, right? We tried to think about that a little bit last night. It wasn't because God didn't choose you because you were worthy. Why did He forgive you? Praise God for Christ's sake. Amen? <laughs> he forgave you for Christ's sake. And uh, Jesus, at the end of this chapter here in Matthew 18, gives a, a very dramatic parable. Uh, to, to show us the severity of our unforgiveness toward others in light of the great debt that we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. So, as we begin, begin here in Matthew chapter 18, um, you'll notice in the 17th chapter, in the 24th verse, they arrive at Peter's house in Capernaum. I always like to uh, set a uh, mental image in a context of this, so I want you to get the idea of... Uh, uh, Jesus and the uh, apostles here being in Peter's house uh, here in Capernaum. And then we have some people come in um, and are asking him throughout the rest of the, uh, the 17th chapter, asking him about 
taxes and tribute, etc., etc. But then at the beginning of the 18th chapter, at the same time, okay, so in the same context, I want you to again get the picture. Uh, Jesus is uh, sitting here with the apostles in Peter's house in Capernaum. And at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> I tell you, you got to love these apostles, right? They're, they're uh, arguing, by the way, Jesus is, you know, going and saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected the third day, and he's telling them all about this stuff, and they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> and they're just like us, right? I'll tell you, they are, they are just as absent-minded, <laughs> just as distracted as we are every day. You know, they, they, they're missing the... Missing the ball. Uh, the Son of God's walking around with them, and they're worried about who's going to uh, be the greatest in the kingdom. He's want, they're wanting him to name a vice president. You know, who's going to be in charge? And now they finally, you know, it's interesting. Read this in, in Mark, I think. I think it's in Mark's account. Uh, they were having this little argument on the way on the way there, and then Jesus said, "Oh yeah, by the way, what?" They get in the house. And, by the way, what were y'all talking about? By the way. <laughs> Nobody said a thing. It says there in, in Mark, they were a little embarrassed. They're a little embarrassed. But now, for some reason, they have some boldness. <laughs> you know, they're, again, they're just like us. Uh, when you first asked, they're a little bit embarrassed. But then finally, it just been eaten at somebody. I don't know who asked it, but it just been eaten at somebody. And then finally, they said, "Jesus, just settle this for us. <laughs> Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be the most important of the apostles? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" And then Jesus calls a little child unto him and sets him in the midst. You know, I think that's important. Yeah. That um, when Jesus came in the house, and it's, it's very interesting um, the way that the apostles um, kind of treated people when Jesus was going around. They felt like that uh, they were his bouncers to a degree. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to keep everybody away. Can't let anybody get... You know, within his bubble, you know, uh, we, we have to keep people at, at arm's distance. And um, and they were always trying to do that. And um, here, though, when Jesus is in the house, again, he's in Peter's, Peter's house. And um, when Jesus came in the house, at least at this time, the apostles didn't say, okay, all the little kids, you go out to the nursery, as it were, you know, y'all you, leave and you go play outside, you go do, do whatever. It's just beautiful to think about the fact that the Son of God is there in Peter's house and those little children are right there at his feet while he's teaching, right? Because he couldn't just pick up that little child if they weren't right there. It wasn't separated, right? It was, it was integrated. They were all there together. And what, what better place to be than uh, listening to the teaching of Jesus at the, at the feet of Jesus, right? But I believe it's beautiful here that uh, they ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus just stoops down and he picks up one of these little bitty children that are playing at his feet. <laughs> one of these little bitty children. And he says, verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. So, here these apostles are having adult problems. <laughs> you know, they're, they're worried about who's better than the other one, who's going to have more authority, who's going to have more power, who's going to have uh, more influence. And isn't it interesting that Children just aren't concerned about all of that, are they? They're very simple-minded. They're very uh, unpretentious. They uh, aren't trying to, you know, a child will be friends with anyone that's, being, that's willing to be a friend with them. <laughs> and the, the apostles are trying to one-up one another. And then Jesus, again, just picks up this little bitty child that's playing in his feet, and he says, this is your example. This is your example. Except you be converted, there was some change of mind that they needed to have. If they were going to uh, press in the kingdom the way they need to, they needed to get rid of some of that pride. They needed to be more humble. And he actually says that directly. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same as greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And um, 
if my mind continues to go in this direction, hopefully we might expound on some of that this afternoon. Uh, Jesus' multiple admonitions of, of becoming as little children and the necessity of having that mindset. It's great to see so many young people and children here today. And there's a reason why God um, doesn't separate those children away in, in worship because, you know, there's a lot of lessons that uh, us old folks need to learn from the young people, okay? And you want to know one of the principal examples of that? Forgiveness. That's where he's going to get around to. Forgiveness. What better example of forgiving 70 times 7, as Jesus is going to say later, forgiving perpetually than a little bitty child? Okay? And we're going to get to that. Now he goes on to say, um, if any of you offend one of these little ones, um, it will better for you the millstone were hanged about his neck. He says, if you know, if your eye causes you to sin, it's better for you to pluck it out than to enter into hellfire. If there's something that's causing you to sin, sometimes you have to take drastic steps to alleviate that problem because if you don't, if it goes unchecked, unaddressed, it's going to cause great sorrow and it's going to cause great pain for you in the future. And it's interesting, the severity. You know, we know salvation is not by works. There's nothing we do in our life that can change that. So whether you uh, figuratively chop off your hand or pluck out your eye, that has no bearing on heaven or hell. But yet he says, if you don't do it, you're going to endure hellfire. That's interesting, right? Uh, that if you don't do it, you're going to be miserable here in this world. You know, Jonah... He was miserable down in the whale's belly. <laughs> he called it the belly of hell. And God's children, if we don't act properly, and we don't uh, exercise self-discipline, he says here, you can experience some hell fire here in this world, some misery and some sorrow if we don't um, have self-discipline, especially if there's an action that's causing us to sin and we don't deal with that properly. He goes on to say about some lost sheep Verses 11 to 14, that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, and uh, giving a different a different parable. The you know the uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 15. You know the lost coin and and then the lost sheep and then the lost son, right? The prodigal that goes away. Uh, it's great to think about the shepherd when the uh, when the sheep comes back. You know, he's not berating the sheep. No, he's thankful that the sheep is returned, same way the son, right? The father, he's looking for the son to return, and he didn't berate him. He didn't berate him. No, he, he welcomed him back, gave him his ring, fatty cap and all that. And what is the um, response that we should have when someone does repent, when someone does come back? It says, um, it doesn't say it here in this context. I, I guess it's in Luke. Uh, where it says there's more joy in heaven. The one sinner that repents, the 99 just souls that don't need repentance. So we need to get happy when people repent, right? <laughs> don't, don't beat them over the head when they come back. You know, we, uh, Maybe we'll make our way to the end uh, with the Corinthian church and where they dealt with, uh, first of all, an unrepentant person, and then he did repent. And he says, look, you don't keep hanging that over their head. No, they've already endured the punishment. They've already endured the sorrow. They've already endured the, the conviction. And when they come back, you don't keep beating them over the head for it. <laughs> no, we need to get just as happy as heaven does when people Amen. repent. Amen. And it says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents and nine-nine just souls who don't need repentance. If, if heaven gets happy about it, we ought to get happy about it in the kingdom of heaven, right? Amen. Okay? <clears throat> now, again... Make sure we have the context here. I don't, this is all, um, but I, I enjoy red letter Bible myself. It just fits my eye well. But if you have a red letter Bible, it's still all red letters, so it's still the same context, okay? He's still speaking the same, speaking to the same people in the same setting. So as Jesus is sitting here in, the, in this, uh, this house, in Peter's house, with the child on his lap, I want you to get that picture. He's, he's giving this lesson right here with a child on his lap. And he says in verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if, he, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. And if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses 
every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if uh, two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, first of all, we need to find out here in verse 15 that this is not necessarily talking about reconciling offenses with people out in the world. It says, moreover, if thy brother. Okay? If thy brother. Now, the principle, you know, these are good principles to apply in other areas. But this is primarily talking to how we deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Okay? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. And that word trespass literally means to sin. To sin. Now, it says in other places in the New Testament, I don't think it, it's here in Matthew, but Jesus essentially says it's inevitable that offenses are going to come. Okay? Forgiveness and offenses is a part of life, and it's a part of life in the church. Okay? Why? Because we're sinners. We make mistakes. You have a bad day, right? You get hangry <laughs> and you say things that you shouldn't say. You get frustrated and, you know, even even when you come to church, you know, hopefully you've had enough time to, you know, detox from some of the challenges of the week, but sometimes you're just a little bit more prickly on Sunday than you are uh, on, on other Sundays. So it's inevitable. It's inevitable, especially verbally. I did a study of uh, Proverbs and trying to map out the topical aspects of Proverbs, you know, because it doesn't flow expositorily like a lot of things, so I tried to map it out. And it's just amazing how much in Proverbs has to deal with speech. Mm -hmm. Speech. Um, and controlling our tongues. And uh, definitely, if you talk about offenses are inevitable, uh, verbal offenses are inevitable. They're inevitable in families. They're inevitable in the workplace. They're especially inevitable in the church. Okay? Now, I'm not going to name specifics when, when we talk about this because there's a lot of variability in this. Okay? And I'll just leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. Okay? But there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things that we get offended by that I don't believe fall into this category of being a full-scale trespass and sin. Okay? And I believe this is a very good pattern, first of all, to follow. Um, that, hey, you know, if you have a miscommunication with someone, if you're offended by something that someone said, the first thing you need to do, which is a great policy in life in general, is to just go talk to them about it. Okay? Um, and I believe you will find, if you find that as your natural disposition, the majority of the time, and I will say even maybe 80% of the time, a lot of the times it's just a miscommunication, right? That's why you just got to talk about it, right? Uh, if you talk about it, you know, uh, and, and as we know, um, most of communication is nonverbal, right? What's the study? It's like 90% or something, which is really crazy to think about, by the way, considering we, nowadays we have so much communication through email and text message. I mean, that's why it's so difficult to, you know, misinterpret something, right? Uh, because we're, we have a very small sample size and we've got a lot of room to project. <laughs> you know, you think about that. If, if that's right, you know, 90% is nonverbal and all that. So, that. so technically, you know, 10% is based on what we actually say. Well, if you're there in person, at least you've got 90, the other 90% to like work on. But then... If you don't, you got a 90% vacuum <laughs> for you to create problems where there's not problems, right? Isn't that something? I just not thought about that right now. That, that, uh, 90%, it gives you 90% of the room to misinterpret something, right? And many, many of the time, if we just talk about it, we'll realize, oh, wait a minute, that's not a trespass. That's not a problem. That's just me misinterpreting something. 
And then another thing is, if you go and you talk to them, you know, this is maybe a little bit out of character for you. Maybe you realize, oh, they are having a bad day. <laughs> so now, how can I help you with that, right? How can I minister to you in that, right? That's why we need to have good communication. That's why we need to have, you know, so, so I think this is a good policy anyway, right? To just have good communication. If someone offends you verbally, a lot of times you can deal with just simple verbal offenses by talking it out, okay? But we're talking about real offenses right here. Okay, we're talking about real trespasses. And I will say that if, if in your mind, if you are not willing to follow these patterns, if it is a, not a significant enough offense for you to bring other people into the situation, and if it's not a significant enough offense where you would bring it to the church, then you need to forgive them for Christ's sake and move on. Amen. Amen. And you can write that down. If you're taking notes, <laughs> if you're taking notes, you want the summary of the message. If it is not significant, because I mean, he said, look, there's not a, there's not an off ramp for a better, you know, better way of putting it. You know, this is the pattern you go to. And if this is not significant enough for you to bring before the church, and if we can't get over this, I'm removing fellowship from you. If that, if you're not willing to go to that end result, you need to forgive him for Christ's sake and move on. Amen. Okay? But, if it is that significant of offense, okay? That trespass, it means sin, alright? And if it's that significant of an offense, go talk to him individually, right? Or her, obviously. Go talk to that person individually, and if he will hear thee, in verse 15, thou hast gained a brother. Right. God's pattern worked, Right? <laughs> Um, you, you tell him honestly, hey, uh, or her, obviously, honestly, that um, this is the offense. I can't get over this offense right now. And how do we reconcile this? And hopefully, if the Holy Spirit of God says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It's great to be reminded of that in public worship. Mm -hmm. But if the Holy Spirit is dwelling with God's people and reconciling offenses and forgiving one another in that conflict kind of situation, how much more so is he going to dwell with us in public worship? But the immediate context here is in reconciling personal offenses, not public worship. Mm -hmm. Now, praise God, if he's going to be with us in that struggling moment, <laughs> how much more so when we're all in unity, right? Yeah. In, in public worship and in the church. But... If you go to them with the right spirit and then they receive it with the right spirit, that's why, hey, if you're gathered, you know, it says if you're gathered in my name. Now, if you're going there with the wrong spirit to just tell them all, okay, things are just going to escalate. It's not going to get better. But if both of you really assemble there in the Lord's name, hopefully, if you do that, I would encourage you to pray with that person, okay, before and after. But if you're, you're, sincerely gathering in the Lord's name, many times the Lord will hopefully, if they're truly in the wrong, they'll convict them. The Holy Spirit will convict them. And then, if you reconcile, and you tell one another you love one another, you hug it out, then you've gained a brother, mm -hmm. right? You've, you've ostracized that, un uh, um, or, or prevented that offense. Um, but I know people in the church that, A, it wasn't even a trespass to this offense. It was something somebody said 20 years ago that they took wrong and they got offended by it. And then they never went and talked to that person. And they've let it grow and grow and grow. And they have bitterness and a grudge for something that happened 20 years ago that they have never even talked to that other person about. But they tell other people about it. Okay? <laughs> That's the reason I know about it. <laughs> um, okay, first of all, first of all, um, you should never, now, you know, you might have to talk about this with your spouse or something, but you should never talk to a third party before you talk to the person who directly offended That's you. Right. Never. Close quote, Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? That's not my opinion. That's what Jesus Christ just said. Okay? You don't go gossip. You don't go tell some third party about it. Now, there's a time to involve other people. But you don't go tell everybody about it. 
you go tell two or three people that you're going to take with you. Okay? But you don't ever, ever go tell a third party before you've told that person directly and you try to reconcile with them directly. Okay? Now, if he won't hear you, you go with the right spirit. You pray about it. And they are just obstinate. And he won't hear you, then bring some witnesses. Okay? And that's why, hopefully, um, you can have some, some people that uh, have good mediatorial experience, you know. A pastor's a good person to have. And deacons, other people uh, that maybe... Maybe you're in um, having to have a member of your church that's in some form of counseling or leadership position where they have to reconcile offenses. You know, there's a lot of good people to, to bring. But the main reason why two or three people are there um, is not to gang up on someone. It's really to have witnesses. Okay, so it's not he said, she said, he said, he said, whatever, whatever. It's not, you know, just two people bickering. Now there are witnesses to say, okay, this is the, this is the problem. This is the offense. His response to this was this. There are third-party witnesses to say, okay, this is the situation, and he is obstinate, and he will not repent. Okay? Now, if you can't reconcile it there, then bring it before the church. Now, I would like to say here, again, this gives us a good pattern for a lot of things in life, but this is not principally saying this is how we deal with church discipline. Okay? It gives us a pattern for it. But this is not talking about church discipline. This is talking about interpersonal offenses. And I can just say, personally, I can't think of any time. Now, I don't know why I didn't get to this point. <laughs> it's possible that maybe maybe people um, just decided I'm going to hold a grudge. And I can say, in many instances, that's the case. I'm just going to choose to hold a grudge instead of forgive them. But I can't think of any time, personally, my whole life in the church, where someone literally brought it before the church to say, I've had this personal offense with someone. Church, can you mediate this personal offense? Um, I can't think of any instance where it's truly been escalated to that level. Now, unfortunately what happens before it gets to, you know, sometimes there'll be two to three people that'll, that'll get involved. And, and um, if you uh, can't reconcile it at that point, I'm just going to be honest with you. The majority of the time, the person's default is, okay, now I have the right to hold a grudge against them perpetually. And that's wrong. That's wrong. Okay? But I can't think of any instance um, where I was involved in a church mediating a personal conflict. Okay? But that's the pattern. That's the pattern that God, God gave for us here. And if he neglected to <clears throat> hear them, tell it to the church, and if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican. And we know the way that publicans were viewed in uh, first century um, culture. Those were not people you wanted to be associated with. Um, they, there was a, a separation of fellowship. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't give you the right, again, to go gossiping to third parties about that and telling everybody about it. He is unto you. In your personal interactions with him, you also don't start making sides and saying, you know, I have this issue with him. If you're still friends with him and I'm not friends with you, he is unto you individually. You individually remove that degree of fellowship. Okay? You know, I was thinking about this. Um, I think a good example of how we ought to deal with his circumstances uh, is Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot, they were having some issues, they were having some strife, and Lot, he ends up going to going to Sodom, but I just, it's not there in the text, but, you know, I just tend to think that there was some things that Abraham was seeing about Lot prior to them separating that was giving him a little bit of concern. Uh, I think there was a reason why they were having strife, and it wasn't all about the cattle and all about the herdmen. I think he was starting to see some things about Lot. He made, there's a reason why he made the decision to go to Sodom. And he was enticed by the worldly things, so to say. So he was seeing, I think, some, some things there beforehand that were giving him a little bit of pause. And then finally, we're having strife, and he says, all right, you, we, 
We need to go our separate way. We need to separate to a degree, right? Now, when that happened, Lot, you know, he looked out there at Sodom and it looked great. Looked like uh, what's the language it uses over there? Almost like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it looked it looked great, right? To the natural eye, uh, but past all that green, lush grass was the wickedness of Sodom, right? Uh, but he chose to go that way, and there was a separation of close fellowship, right? There was a separation of close fellowship. But then I think it's also commendable for Abraham when that happened, um, that when Lot got kidnapped, he went and rounded up his servant army and go went and, um, and liberated him, right? So he, did, he didn't hold this... This like vitriol, you know, I think some people read that. Let him be under these a publican and a heathen. Well, that's my right to uh, hold this uh, grudge over their head and treat them bad. Well, how did Abraham treat Lot? He still loved him. He still loved him. You know, he went and rescued him when he was kidnapped. And then, furthermore, you know, God shows up there on a Flames of Mamre, and he said, I'm going to go to Sodom. And then um, Abraham is pleading with him, you know, negotiating. Will you save the city for, you know, 50, 40, 30? What did they get down to? 10 people? You know, he's, he's negotiating with them. And I think to a large degree, uh, one of the main reasons why God saved Lot was not because of Lot. It was because of Abraham, honestly. Because Lot didn't want to leave. <laughs> he didn't want to leave. So I think that's a great example of, okay, we're having conflict, we're having an issue, we're going we're gonna to separate, we need to, we need to get some distance between us, I'm going to do my thing, you do your thing, but there's not a, there's not a hatred, there's not a vitriol, uh, Abraham was still committed uh, to loving Lot and praying for him, beseeching the Lord to spare him in Sodom. And, and then even going out of his way to rescue him when, when he was kidnapped, okay? <clears throat> Verse 19. Again I say unto you that if uh, two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. <clears throat> and then where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And isn't that good to think about the fact that um, as we're going through this process, if we're approaching it in the right spirit, that Jesus Christ is right there with us. You know, because in all honesty, you know, do I have the ability to uh, make someone feel bad enough about, if you got to this point, possibly, do, do I have the ability to just lay out this is the exact situation and this is my exact struggle with this situation. Just from laying all those facts out, is there a strong possibility that many people are going to say, if you've already got to this point, yes, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. A lot of times, if you've got to this point, the, the trenches are dug in to a degree. Okay? So how's that, how's that going to change? primarily going to change by the convicting spirit of God, right? That's why we have to approach that in Jesus' name. And again, there's just no place, there's no place in the church and in the kingdom for 20-year grudges that people, somebody, somebody didn't apply Matthew 18 somewhere around uh, along the road, Okay? And part of it was, I know people again, that somebody said something 20 years ago, they never talked to them, and they still hold a grudge 20 years ago, even though they never did what Jesus said to do. Okay? That's just sin. And, I, and another thing, in my opinion, that's just pride. That's just pride. That you're, you're elevating your feelings and your offense above God's word. Yeah. Okay? And we we should know we can't trust our feelings 100%. Um, you know, sometimes we're a little bit too I tried to kind of calibrate this this statement I've made in the past, you know, you can't trust your heart. Don't follow your heart. 
the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yes, your natural heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But God guides you as a child of God. He guides you by, by your heart. You know, you just have to follow your heart as it follows Scripture. Okay? But your feelings, you should know this if you're a disciple of Christ, your feelings are not your primary motiva- motivating factor because your Amen. feelings are wrong a lot. Amen. And there's a lot of things you're commanded to do whether you feel like it or not. <laughs> That's most of what, let's just be honest, that's most of what discipleship is. <laughs> it's doing what you know you're supposed to do when you don't feel like it. <laughs> so to say that I had my feelings hurt 20 years ago and my feelings are so important that I'm going to hold this vitriolic grudge against somebody, that's saying your feelings are more important, especially if it's in the church, your feelings are more important than unity in the body of Christ. Yes. That's pride. That's pride. That's why he said, look at this little bitty child. <laughs> right? Be humble like this little bitty child. Uh, my, uh, my older brother is 20 months older than me. Uh, his name's Jonathan. My name's David. And I guess my parents just wanted us to, you know, be have our souls knit with one another. And, you know, be best friends. I don't. We haven't had that discussion. I don't know if that's why they named me David. You know, but it just didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Um, and uh, me and Jonathan, we get along really good now. That we live in, you know, different cities, and uh, and you know, it just didn't work that good when we shared a room. It just didn't. It just didn't. Um, but as a whole, as a whole, children, us two, right, uh, you can be at each other's necks in the moment, but it doesn't last long. I mean, do, do you know of any, any kids that are saying, you know, somebody hurt my feelings a year ago? Something. No, no, the, the way that boys work, you know, we fight, we punch one another in the nose, and we're good five minutes later, right? <laughs> Um, do do kids hold grudges? No. Generally, no. Kids don't hold grudges. And it's just beautiful to think about the fact that Jesus is sitting here with this kid in his lap. <laughs> and he's telling these grown adults, look at this little kid, look at this little child for the example of forgiveness. Right? Don't hold long-term grudges. Reconcile with them because I'll tell you that I think playing with their friend is more important than holding a grudge for kids, right? <clears throat> so now this is a later private conversation in Matthew 18. And um, after this account, Peter goes and asks him individually. And I, I just, you know, I don't know the, the background of this, but it sure seems like Peter was struggling with something for him to ask Jesus this right after what Jesus told him. So he goes to him privately. Now, he had been sitting with a child on his lap. Now this is a private conversation between Peter and Jesus. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Now, Till seven times, um, the common uh, Jewish idea, not the Jewish idea really, uh, the Pharisee idea, uh, was that for all practical purposes, four strikes and you're out. Uh, I'll have to forgive you three times, but on that fourth time, I have the right to hold it against you, which is a misapplication. This is the way the Pharisees did things. A misapplication of the book of Amos. Okay? Don't turn over here, but just listen to this. You know, he's describing multiple judgments on multiple different nations and all this stuff. And he uses this language many times here in the book of Amos. Uh, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he tells multiple nations that. In other words, um, three, three strikes, you're right on the border. But four judgment's coming. So the, so the, uh, the Jews, for some reason, felt like that because God said that, <laughs> that, they felt like that because God said that, that I have the right <laughs> to uh, only forgive somebody three times. Uh, 
which is certainly incorrect, right? Uh, that's just the way the Pharisees operated, right? They, they were always trying to create bondage and legalism and all these laws. And for some reason, they thought, since God said that, we have the right uh, to hold people accountable in a very unforgiving way when they reach four offenses. So I think that's important to understand with what Peter is used to being a Jew, is that he's actually being very charitable. He's being very charitable to say, I'm willing to forgive somebody seven times. Very charitable. But then Jesus says, I say unto thee, uh, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, that, he obviously doesn't mean literally 490, and then 491, you know, you've got the right to go get them. You know, if you, you got a bigger problem if you're counting 490 offenses <laughs> waiting to get to 491. I mean, you've missed the boat if you're counting 490 offenses. But what Jesus is saying here is that you should forgive perpetually. Right. Okay? Now, what does this all boil back to? That God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Okay? And that's the parable that he gives us here to teach that lesson. <clears throat> he begins here in verse 23. Notice, therefore is the kingdom of heaven. So we're still talking about the church. Right? We're still talking about the kingdom. We're talking about brothers, you know, even Peter's question. How often shall my brother offend me? Right? We're talking about brothers and sisters. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the church. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. You know, it's interesting. He's not even asking for forgiveness here. He's just asking for an extension. You know, just, just give me time. Give me time. I'll pay it all. And the Lord of that servant, this is important, was moved with compassion with love, right? He was moved with compassion. And he loosed him and forgave him the debt. I mean, 10,000 talents. I mean, currency rates, they change all the time. But just to give you a little bit of an idea, a little bit of a framework and perspective, um, 10,000 talents could easily be rendered about $15 million, okay? And then he's going to end up not forgiving somebody for 100 pence, which is the equivalent of $15, I want you to put those two in perspective, all right? How do you think that you would be feeling? You know, if you've ever been in financial debt, it's a great weight on you physically, right? I mean, that causes a lot of stress. It causes a lot of strain. And could you imagine just in a natural sense how you would physically feel if someone said, not just that I'm forgiving your mortgage, couple hundred thousand dollars or something but i'm forgiving you a 15 million dollar ten thousand talent debt how do you think you would feel i hope that i would be excited and that i would be joyful and the last thing i would ever do <laughs> in the aftermath of being forgiven that debt hopefully the last thing i would ever do is go, somebody, go find somebody that owed me a couple dollars, right? And then say, I am going to exact on you the same vengeance that I had coming on me before my Lord forgave me. So what, what would your reaction be if someone gave you, forgave you this magnitude of debt? I hope it would be joy and forgiveness toward others, right? It should give you a greater perspective. It should give you greater joy. And what was this man's response, unfortunately, the servant's response? The servant went out. It almost sounds like that this was pretty quick, soon after. It may not have been immediately, but I mean, it seems like it was pretty soon after. And for him to be so, um, I guess, just obtuse to, to the magnitude of what he had been forgiven, and then immediately, first thing on his mind, <laughs> again, uh, 
you know, you can think about this yourself, but, but the first thing on his mind after he's been forgiven that debt, instead of just going home and celebrating, the first thing on his mind is, man, I remember that somebody didn't give me 20 bucks a couple years ago. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? That's ridiculous. For that to be the first thing in your mind, that someone owes you an inconsequential amount right after you've been forgiven this magnitude of debt, right? But he goes and he finds one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred pence. Just, just a couple bucks. Just a couple dollars. And he laid... Notice how violent he's being here. He laid hands on him, took him by the throat, and said, pay me all that thou owest. And his fellow servant says the... This is interesting. Says the exact same thing to him that he said to the Lord. Have patience with me and I will pay thee. I'm not even asking you to forgive me. I'll, I'll pay you what you owe me. Just give me some time. That's the exact same thing that he had just said to the Lord. And what was his response? He would not but went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt, which to me doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean, if he wants your money back, um, I'm not going to throw somebody in prison. You know? You can't work in prison. <laughs> I want my money back. Um, go work it off. Right? It doesn't make any sense. I mean... I think what we find right there is it must not really be about the money. Right? If he wanted the money back, he wouldn't throw him in prison. It's not really about the money. It's about him exacting personal vengeance. It's really what it boils down to. Right? He's wanting to make himself feel better by punishing someone else. We said earlier that forgiveness is a debt. You know... If somebody owes you something, you know, it's a sacrifice. It's an injury to you to a degree for you to say, I'm going to be the one that pays that debt. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. Okay? But here's what we have to be reminded of when we're called with the challenging task of forgiving others who have legitimately trespassed and sinned against us you have to look to the cross you have to see the magnitude of the 10,000 talent times a billion debt that you have against Jesus Christ and he didn't forgive you because you were repentant he didn't forgive you because you were groveling at his feet saying have patience with me and I'll pay you all. He didn't forgive you because you were contrite. Why did he forgive you? Solely for Christ's sake. Solely for Christ's sake. So therefore, how can we forgive someone that has offended us? How can I choose in my ledger book to pay that debt instead of in my own mind? Hopefully you don't do it externally by gossiping and slander and running them down. But even in my own mind, I'm going to throw them in prison and torture them in my mind by holding a grudge. Okay? How do you pay that debt? How do you pay the debt? You need to be reminded of the great debt that you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's what this parable is teaching, just in case you haven't figured it out yet. That is the 10,000 talent debt. You're the 10,000 talent debt debtor. And you were forgiven solely by the compassion of Jesus Christ, Amen. by the love of God. And how dare we dishonor the blood of Jesus Christ by going out and saying that someone else's offense, if he was willing to forgive me for Christ's sake, what I'm saying when I refuse to forgive someone is that my offense, their offense toward me is greater than my offense toward God that God forgave me of. And that's dishonoring the Lord. That's dishonoring the blood of Jesus Christ to say that my offense is greater than what Christ paid for. That's why you have to look to the cross. Because most likely that person's not going to be worthy of your forgiveness. But you want to know why this person was forgiven? You want to know why you were forgiven? Compassion. And what did this man not have? Compassion. Okay? Now, the word got out about this. And it was the other servants. The other servants knew that this was unfair. I mean, this guy was forgiven this huge debt, and now he's throwing this other guy in prison. 
And they went and they told the guy, the Lord that forgave him. Because they knew that was wrong. Even in the just the general disposition of the community, they knew it was wrong for that to happen. So they go and they tell him what, what happened. And he said, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion. You should have shown the same love to him that I showed to you. Right? <clears throat> you should have had compassion on my fellow servant even as I had pity on thee. And as his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you forgive your if you uh, from your hearts forgive not everyone your brother that trespasses against you. Now Obviously, this doesn't have anything to do with God sending people to hell. That can't be the context of it, right? But if you choose to not forgive someone and hold this debt against you, he says, you know, how do we pray? Do you have enough boldness to pray the model prayer, right, by the way? (laughs) Do you have enough boldness to pray the, the model prayer that forgive my debts as I forgive others? You have no boldness to pray that prayer right? <laughs> well, if you pray that prayer right and God holds you accountable to your words and you're unforgiving toward others, he said, I'm going to exact some torment on you. There's going to be some severe conviction. There's going to be a lot of, of uh, internal tor- turmoil that you're going to have in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to have a lot of internal turmoil in the kingdom of heaven and God says, here, I'm delivering you to the tormentors. And see, that's why, you understand, right? <laughs> that if, if someone has offended you and they refuse to repent and then you hold that grudge against them, they've already self-justified themselves in their mind. Are you hurting them in any way by holding this against them? No, that they, at this point, they've already convinced themselves they haven't done anything wrong. They've self-justified themselves. Who's the only person you're hurting? Who's the only person you're hurting by not forgiving them or holding a grudge? You're delivering your own self into torment. The only person you're hurting is yourself. The only person. Okay? Let's conclude in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul had to speak very harshly and very directly to the church at Corinth, especially in his first letter. And one of the real problems that they had was that they had a man having a very inappropriate, sinful relationship that they had not dealt with. And furthermore, they were bragging about their own charity by not dealing with it. So not only did they not deal with it, they were prideful about the fact of how loving and charitable we're being. Now we need to be loving and charitable. But the integrity and the health of the overall body is more important. That's what he goes on to say. Look, a little leaven, leaven at the whole lot. I mean, there's sometimes you have to do things that are very uncomfortable to protect the, the health of the entire body. And in that circumstance, he said, look, you've got to deal with this because if you don't, it's going to hurt the whole church. It's going to hurt the whole body. All right? And then, thankfully, they received it in the right way and they dealt with it. And then he responded in the right way. And he repented. And he's addressing this now as a follow-up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Actually, let's read verse 5 first. But if any man have caused grief, he hath grieved, uh, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment who is inflicted to many. So that contrawise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I may that I might know the proof of you whether you be obedient in all things to whom you forgive anything I forgive also for if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Jesus Christ in other words he says look this man has repented but you haven't forgiven him okay 
you're still trying to hold it over his head. He says, look, why are you going to uh, sufficient to such a man as the punishment thereof? The, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the shame of everyone else, he has endured his punishment. He has endured his sorrow. And now, now that he's forgiven, how should you receive him back? The same way that heaven received him, right? Like we mentioned earlier. There should be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. That's how the kingdom of heaven should respond, right? In the church. So he says, look, you were responding improperly on the front end by being haughty about allowing it. Now you're responding improperly on the back end by not properly forgiving him and bringing him back in love now that he has repented. Okay? He says, look, confirm in verse 8, confirm your love toward him. Aren't you glad, you know, it says our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Aren't you glad that God didn't forgive you, but then every time he sees you, he brings back up what you, what you did, right? Well, are you glad that God didn't treat you that way? I'm very glad God didn't treat me that way. <laughs> then why would we treat other people that way, right? Why would I bring up past defenses all the time? Now, now I, I don't want to speak too blindly here. When someone breaches trust and they do things that compromise that trust, that doesn't mean that you totally whitewash it and you go back to exactly the way things were. No, there's a process. There's a process of building that trust back up. So I don't, I'm not talking about us just being blind Okay? That's right. But there's a difference between forgiving and then treating them differently because of that forgiveness. Okay? Um, so I'm not, I'm not simply saying you need to ignore past offenses. No, no. People's actions dictate fellowship. Okay? And we need to judge that accordingly. But then Paul says here, you need to forgive him. You need to show love to him. And notice this language in verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I, I think one of the uh, most successful devices um, that Satan has in his artillery is leading us to unforgiveness. That's what he's talking about there in context, right? What's his device? Unforgiveness. And what does unforgiveness and these grudges cause? Fractures and disrupting the unity of the church. Right? Amen. We're talking about the church. He's saying, look, that person forgives and you, you, you haven't brought him back as welcome, uh, as lovingly as you should have. It's causing fractures and disunity in the church. And when we allow those to fester... We are giving Satan an advantage. And Satan doesn't need any advantages. I mean, he, he's already, um, he's a hard worker. I'll tell you, he, he's efficient. Um, he is out to deceive the saints all of the time. And we don't need to give him any leg up. <laughs> we don't need to give him anything to work with. We don't need to give him an advantage, but unforgiveness is one of... Satan's most effective devices. It's one of his most effective devices. But isn't it good though, right? It says a little bit later on in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, a little bit later on, that the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty through God, right? So isn't it good that what we have in our arsenal, what we have in our artillery, is more powerful than the devices of Satan and the temptations of Satan, Right? And, and, what, and in this context, what, what is the uh, powerful army that we have? You know, what, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the um, uh, military object that we, that we have? It's, it's forgiveness, right? It's forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. Amen. And, you know, I'm, I'm still very young and still very green, but, but I, I have seen a lot of fractures and disunity in the church over long-term grudges and unforgiveness just simply because, I don't know if you haven't been taught, 
I don't know if you just are not obeying the Word of God, but there is no circumstance, there is no circumstance that you should ever have a 20-year grudge, ever. <laughs> ever. Not if you're going to that person directly. Not if you're praying for the intervention of the Holy Spirit, reconciling with other people. There, there's no scenario that that issue could could grow that long, and you don't know the only person you're damaging by allowing it to, to uh, fester that long. The only person you're hurting is you. God didn't want you to be injured that way. God gave us the pattern, right? He gave us the pattern. And, and Lord forbid we ever disrupt the unity of the church by us saying, my feelings are more important than the unity of the church. My i got to make sure that my debt is paid. i got to make sure my offense is paid. Instead, we look at the cross, we look at our 10,000 talent debt that we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, and we forgive them for Christ's sake. Right? We forgive them for Christ's sake. And it's easy to preach on a Saturday morning. Right? <laughs> it's easy to preach, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. I mean, it's hard to pay that debt. Yeah, I'm an accountant, and I don't like writing off debt. <laughs> I, I don't like somebody not paying me what they owe me. Uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to do to write off that debt. But we have to be reminded of the debt that we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And I certainly hope and pray that God can give us the grace um, to not give Satan an advantage. Not, not be ignorant. You know, the last thing you can do in a warfare, we're in a warfare. We're in a spiritual warfare. And the last thing that you can do is to be naive and ignorant in the middle of a war. You need to be knowledgeable about what's going on. You need to be knowledgeable about the devices of the enemy. And God's given us that knowledge. Let's forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And God bless you. Lord has thoroughly blessed us again this morning. Um, it's torn between songs of Jesus paid it all, but I'm going to go with number 42. It's the Lord in thy presence. And I know we've just met. I'm going to read it to you. Just want y'all to chew on it and then we'll sing it. It says, Lord in thy presence, here we meet. May we be found in thee. Oh, make the place divinely sweet and let thy grace abound. With harmony, thy servants bless that we may own to Thee. Oh, how good, how sweet, how pleasant tis when brethren all agree. May Zion's good be kept in view and bless our feeble aim that all we undertake to do may glorify Thy name. This song can be sung at the start of a public worship service. It can be sung before a conference service. <laughs> it can be sung before you go and have that reconciliation with your brother. This can be that prayer. I'd like you to stand and sing number 42, Lord and thy friends. Lord in thy presence, here we
everybody to stay and partake of lunch, and after we're done eating, we'll come back in for our afternoon service. I'm going to ask my father, uh, ask Moses, if he'll close us in prayer and ask a blessing on the food. Well, Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you've provided today, and pray that it will sink deep into our hearts and our minds and our behaviors from this day forward, that we would forgive as you've forgiven us in all things in you. I pray that you'd be with the church here, encourage, strengthen, bless it. Pray that you'd be with the food, bless it to the nourishment of our bodies, and that's your service. In Jesus' name, pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.